five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, related chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, I am bringing you a kidney warrior story. Now there's always something you can learn from someone's story, something that can bring inspiration and hope. My guest today from New York, USA is neurologist Dr. Philippe Dion. Dr. Philippe is a two-time kidney transplant recipient, author and online course creator. Dr. Philippe joins me to share his inspirational kidney warrior story and the lessons he has learned during his kidney warrior journey. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Philippe? Oh, I'm doing so well, so well. Looking forward to this conversation. Me too, me too. Welcome to the podcast. As everyone knows, I absolutely love recording Kidney Warrior stories because I truly believe that there's so much that we can learn from listening to someone's lived experience. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and learning more. Yeah, look, I, I love sharing my stories. I love hearing other people's stories. I think stories are so incredibly impactful. And like you said, that gives us an opportunity to really learn from each other and then do better in our own lives. I'm really looking forward to this. So let's go. I'm going to kick off with my first question. And my question is, how did your kidney warrior journey begin and how were you diagnosed? So my journey began 25 years ago when I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, university over here in the United States. And I went to college on a tennis scholarship. And so that first week of practice I had to go in for a physical. And, you know, I had been a, a young, healthy athlete my entire life. And then I failed my physical. And they weren't sure why I failed. So they said, you know, why don't you come back in a week? And then we'll repeat the physical. So I go to practice later that day. And so my coach and my team are like, oh, how'd your physical go? And I'm like, I failed. You know, I don't know why they saw something in my urine and they're not sure. Now, my doubles partner, so I was, uh, I played tennis in college. My doubles partner, who was a senior, turns to me and says, hey, don't have sex for the next few days and then repeat your physical. And I was like, wow, you have a lot of faith in me. Like, you, think I'm, you know, like I'm days on this campus and you already think I'm having sex, right? So I was like, okay. So I go back the second time around and I failed the physical again. But this time we had a big tournament coming up and I was one of the, I was like the highest recruited player on the team. I played number two or number three for my team at that point. And so they were like, you've got this big tournament. We're going to let you go play. So I go play this tournament in this very small town over here in Pennsylvania. And while I'm playing my second match of the day, I go to serve and my entire body goes into one large cramp and I collapse on the ground. 
unable to move. And so they essentially, once they realized, okay, he can't finish this match, they picked me up. Two people picked me up by my feet and my hands and moved me to the back part of the court by the fence and just laid me there and put a match on <laughs> the court I had just been on, right? And now I just can't move. Like my muscles are just locked up. I cannot move. I'm in pain. I've got tennis balls from the court I was on hitting me. I've got tennis balls from other courts coming and hitting me. Oh and nobody goodness. does anything, right? So they just, finally after- They just left you there. They just left me there. Wow. Just left me there. And finally, after about an hour, they decide, okay, we're going we're gonna to call the ambulance and <laughs> get, this, get this kid to the hospital. So I go to the, uh, Wait, to the hospital. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. Sorry. Yep. So you <clears throat> essentially collapse on the court yep. and they just pick you up, right. put you on the side and leave you there right. for an right. hour before for an hour. calling medical attention. Right. This is not the most diverse place in the United States. Wow. Let's just say that. Wow. <laughs> right. And so, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so after, you know, they call the ambulance, I, I finally go to the hospital and there, you know, they give me IV fluids. They're doing a bunch of blood work. I start to feel better. And they say, hey, when you get back to your hometown, you need to go see a nephrologist, a kidney specialist. And that's really how my story began. I am, I, I, I'm speechless. I have never, ever heard of something like this. That is just so disgusting that you were treated in that way. And wow, what? Yeah, good old I, Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. That, that's just going, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So yeah. when you were told about seeing a nephrologist then, so they must have seen something in your urine and blood works that, would have indicated that. So did they explain anything to you to say that? Or, you know, what did they yeah, say so, to you? So at the time they said that they saw proteins and microscopic blood in my urine. And I'm 18 years old. I have no idea what this means, right? I'm just like, okay. And so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm able, they discharge me from the hospital and I come back to New York with my team and end up scheduling to see a nephrologist. Wow. Honestly, I'm taken aback, not in a good way. So when you went to see the nephrologist, then what did the nephrologist say to you? So the nephrologist thought I had like a post-strep glomerular nephritis, that I had, you know, sort of strep throat at some point. And as a result, my, you know, my body just started attacking my kidneys. And so then the nephrologist was like, I want to take you in for a biopsy. And so went in to have my first kidney biopsy, which was a very painful experience that first time. Used very little lidocaine. They used, <laughs> they used this guy, I, I mean, they, this is not how they do biopsies nowadays, but whatever they used just seemed so archaic. It was painful and they couldn't get tissue. Oh, wow. And so after trying for a period of time, they were like, okay, we're, we're going to have to keep you in the hospital. We're going to have to try again tomorrow. And so um, that was my first kidney biopsy experience. I mean, my first kidney biopsy experience wasn't that great either, but compared to what you're describing, oh my goodness. So yeah. honestly, I'm speechless, like, which is a rare moment, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I talk for days, but... So when you had the kidney biopsy, 
the next day. Mm -hmm. What did they say to you after that? So they had said that a lot of the kidney cells were scarred over. You know, then it was about my blood pressure at 18 years old was really high. So they put me on blood pressure medication. They started collecting 24-hour urine samples from me. There was sort of this back and forth, just, you know, I would have to come from university and go see the kidney doctor from time to time. But there was always this knowledge, this knowing that at some point I was going to need a kidney transplant. So rewinding slightly then, so you mentioned that there was a knowledge that you would need a kidney transplant, but did you have an understanding at that time what it meant to have kidney disease? Did they explain anything to you or was it just straight to saying one day you'd need a transplant? Yeah, it was one day that you'll need this. I mean, look, I was 18 years old, right? I felt generally pretty good. At 18, you're supposed to be invincible, you're not thinking about your mortality or disease or any of that, right? It's like, oh, I'm in college, playing tennis in college. I'm on a tennis scholarship. I'm around all these people. I had goals to be a doctor someday. So this almost felt like a nuisance, you know, just like a lot of times it was very much an afterthought, which I do think in the long run actually saved me and served me very well because it never became something that I so strongly identified with. It was always kind of like, yeah, 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 that's there. But I've got all these other things that I need to do. So would you say that you were in denial about it? Or was it just a case of not realizing how serious it was? I think it was it was a little bit of both of being in denial, not realizing how serious it was. Um, again, I'm 18 years old, you know. So I think it was a little bit of both for, at the very least, for my entire college experience. I think for me, when it became really serious, actually, was when I was in medical school. So up until medical school, were you monitored regularly and on medication, or were they just kind of watching how things went? I was monitored. You know, I went to the, so the kidney specialist probably once every three, four months. I right? always did these, had to fill up these big bottles <laughs> with my urine. I was on blood pressure medication. But at the time I was in college, I mean, I, I barely took that blood pressure medication. Again, like I didn't. I didn't quite get it, right? And so, you know, I, I, I took fairly good care of myself. I was playing on the team. I was physically active. I never drank alcohol. So, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't quite get it. So was it when you got to medical school and things took a turn for the worst that you now understood it? Or, you know, at what yeah. point did it kick in that this is serious? Yeah. So things took a turn for the worst. Now, I ended up getting a new kidney doctor, actually right on the same campus that my medical school was. Also, yeah, I started feeling really bad, you know, as a result, like, especially the second year of medical school, I never went to class because I, I just felt so bad. So I essentially just studied on my own. And, you know, I'm in medical school, so I'm actually learning <laughs> about what is going on in my body, right? So things took a turn for the worst. I got a new doctor. And I'm actually learning what is going on. That's when I realized how serious it was. So you said that you went on to have a kidney transplant. So how did that come about? Yeah. So while in medical school, I wanted to avoid dialysis at all costs. And so did my doctors. But actually, my doctor at that point, and who still is my doctor, is one of the sort of top guys in the world 
when it comes to glomerular diseases. And so I was blessed because my father tested to be my kidney donor. And, you know, he was a good enough match where we could make that happen. And so it was the plan essentially was to keep me healthy enough to get me through medical school. And so eight days after graduating medical school, eight days after I walked across the stage at Carnegie Hall and got my diploma and became a doctor, I then walked into the operating room at New York Presbyterian Columbia here in New York and had a kidney transplant. And my father was my donor. So my my father gave me life and saved my life at that point. That is absolutely incredible. I mean, to go through medical school, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult that is by itself. But to go through that, have to deal with all the side effects and symptoms and everything that you have to deal with when you have low kidney function and be able to study at that level is absolutely incredible. So I don't know how you managed it, to be honest with you. I think that is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'm, you know, I had gotten so sick actually at one point and felt so badly at one point that I did have to split my schedule. And so it did take me an extra year to graduate medical school, but it was because I was in kidney failure and just felt horrible. So what type of medicine did you train in? So I'm a neurologist. So I take care of people with brain and spinal cord and nerve issues by, you know, I have a subspecialty where I'm an epileptologist. So I take care of people specifically with epilepsy, but Nowadays, I, I see everybody, stroke patients, MS, epilepsy, headaches, low back, everything. Honestly, I think that is absolutely incredible that you were able to achieve all of this with everything that you had going on. Your dad stepping in and being mm-hmm. your superhero. I call all living donors superheroes because I absolutely. really believe that they are stepping in to give you that gift of life. And as you said, he, you know, he brought you into this world and, and then... And he kept me in this world. Yeah. So I think um, amazing. Yeah. And I was blessed again where uh, last year I needed another kidney transplant. And my cousin-in-law, so somebody who's not even related to me, stepped up and gave me the gift of life. So how did that come about needing to have the second kidney transplant? Yeah. So, you know, initially when I was 18, I was diagnosed with post-strep glomerular nephritis. So they thought that this was due to a strep throat that I had. But later on, when I got a different doctor, a different diagnosis was made, and it was membranoproliferative glomerular nephritis, so MPGN for short, which is something that's autoimmune. And so after a few years, the initial disease process actually started to come back. And so again, I knew that you know I was going to have to sort of go down this route. And then the pandemic hit. And right before the pandemic, I was starting to prepare for kidney transplant. But when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get COVID. Like that thing will kill me. Right. So I quarantined myself, a hard quarantine. Like, I mean, I was just basically around my children. (laughs) Like I was not around anybody else. You know, if I was around somebody like my parents, it was like double mask, you know, like my parents have not seen my face probably at this point in like three years or something, right? Right. <laughs> and even around my children, I would wear masks. So COVID started, what, December? Uh, I mean, sorry, COVID really started here in the States, like around March 2020. January 2021, I started to feel very, very sick. 
And I thought it was because of a new medication that I had been put on. All right. So I called my doctor and I'm like, I am not doing well with this medication. Like, you know, I'm like sitting here, I've got a whole bunch of GI symptoms. And he was like, Hey, why don't you come to the ER so we can check you out? I was like, okay. So I get to the emergency room, you know, they take blood. At that point, they're swabbing everybody for COVID. So I'm laying in one of the stretchers and I'm like, I need to go pee. So I get up to go pee. And one of the nurses comes to me. She's like, you cannot walk around. I was like, why not? She's like, because you have COVID. You need to stay where you are. Wow. And I was like, I have COVID. Like, I ended up in the hospital sick for two weeks, incredibly sick, watching actually the, the second night watching my oxygen saturations level drop, which as a doctor, seeing those numbers drop is never a good thing. And I said to the physician assistant on call that night, I was like, you need to do everything you can to save me. I've got two little boys who really need me. Right. And then also COVID essentially took out what kidney function I had left. And I then had to do what I feared the most at that time, which was do dialysis. And so when they told me that I needed to do dialysis, I think it was actually my first night in the hospital. And I had always been terrified of dialysis because everybody that I had seen do it in the hospital just looked like they were waiting to die. And so they told me that, and I just started to tear up. I let myself feel those feelings for you know, a good hour. And then I had a decision to make. I had to decide whether or not I was going to do dialysis the way I had seen everybody else do it, whether I was going to do it my own way. And so I decided I was going to do it my own way. And so started dialysis in the hospital, which is certainly not easy physically, emotionally, mentally. And then my cousin, who had been in the process of getting worked up to be a potential donor, was a match for me. And so after a few months of doing dialysis, we ended up doing the kidney transplant. So that gives hope to many people out there who may have had a failed first kidney transplant that a second kidney transplant is possible and that it can, you know, make a massive difference to your life. And so Absolutely. what difference has kidney transplantation made to your life? Yeah. So actually, before I even answer that, my, so my doctor, <laughs> I remember my doctor saying to me once, Hey, I've got four, I've got people who have had four or five kidney transplants. I'm like, dude, I'm not trying to have four or five kidney <laughs> transplants. Like, let's make this second one last. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm with you on that okay, one. So, yeah. So it's not just, you know, a failed first one. You know, there are people that have had multiple. Right. And so for me, obviously, it saved my life. It's given me a second, a third chance at life. It's allowed me to raise my sons, right? But I'd like to think over the last, I don't know, 15 years as a doctor, I have saved thousands of lives. I have helped thousands of people improve their health, right? I've changed the lives of thousands of people, helped them to transform their own lives, and so it's not just when you're a kidney donor, it's not just about the one life that you're saving. It's all the other lives that that one life is going to impact. Right? So like you said, donors are superheroes and they don't even know it. That's a really powerful statement because I think many people, as you said, think of donation in isolation to one individual, but actually the impact of that sacrifice impacts thousands, you know, countless people. And I think that is such an important point. 
you know, for anyone who's listening who might be considering donation, whether that's as a living donor or agreeing to donate after you've passed, I think hearing that is so, so powerful. It's not just one life, but it's potentially thousands of lives that you will save and impact. So yeah, that is such an important point. So as a neurologist, somebody that deals with the brain, and when I think of the brain, I think of thoughts and how powerful thoughts can be. How have you applied what you've learned in your training as a doctor and your experience as a kidney warrior to help others or for your own life? How has the power of the mind, so to speak, impacted you and impacted others? Well, you know, I think that my experience with kidney disease, my experience as being a patient has contributed to me being a really great doctor, right? Because I completely understand what my patients go through. I understand what it feels like to face your mortality, what it feels like to look in the mirror and not recognize who you are anymore. I know what it feels like to have to take a bunch of pills and sometimes have side effects from them, right? I know what it feels like to not be sure of what the future holds, even though the future is not guaranteed for anybody, right? I mean, people can step out their houses and get hit by a truck, right? But I know what it feels like to sort of have a diagnosis, sort of sit right there. And like you said, our thoughts are incredibly powerful, right? I mean, we, we used to think that our brains were really static, like they didn't change unless somebody got some kind of degenerative disease or had some trauma. But now we know that that's not the case, that our brains are constantly changing, constantly evolving. And one of the things that helps our brains evolve is the thoughts that we have. And so there's some studies out there that suggest that there's anywhere between, like we have anywhere between 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts every single day. Like, I don't know how they went about counting people's thoughts, right? But, but that is a lot of thoughts, right? 90 to 95% of those thoughts are the same exact thoughts we had yesterday. And so people then wonder why their lives aren't changing if they're thinking the same way, right? 60 to 70% of those thoughts are negative thoughts that people have. So then people wonder, well, why is my life not changing and why am I miserable? It all starts with the thoughts you have. And for me, when I heard that I was going to need to do dialysis, I had to change my thinking around that, right? I said I had to make a decision. Was I going to do it the way I had seen other people do it or was I going to do it my way? That was a conscious decision to change the way that I thought about dialysis and to change the way that I thought about what my experience on dialysis was going to be, right? And so one of the things that I do when I am helping people, seeing patients, I start to talk to them about the way that they think about their diagnosis. Because oftentimes, people very strongly identify with their diagnosis, right? And sometimes I feel like we do a disservice by giving people that label, because then they decide that they're going to live up to that label, either consciously or subconsciously. And so I'll I'll give you an example. I had a patient who had been... uh, an epilepsy patient had seizures, got him to a place where he had been seizure-free for almost a year, seeing him in follow-up. And I said to him, uh, hey, what have you been doing the last six months? You know, you haven't had a seizure. He's like, he's like, nothing. I have epilepsy. And I'm like, nothing. Are you just waiting for the next seizure to happen? Like, it's, you've been seizure-free for almost a year, right? But because he was living up to that diagnosis, he now had limited beliefs of what he could do. Look, we're all going to face things in life, but the thoughts that we have about 
whatever those challenges are, thoughts that we have about ourselves, the thoughts that we have about our lives, that is going to determine the actions that we take and the approach that we have when facing those challenges. That's really powerful. What you believe and what you think about yourself can be very detrimental or it can be very positive. And I think in my own life, for anyone familiar with my story, check out episode one if you're not familiar with it. But everyone will know that I got to that point within my life when I was told, look, I think you're six months away from dialysis, this, that and the other. And, you know, initially I was like, no, I'm not. And I had this real kind of really strong response at first to say, no, I'm not going to be on dialysis. I'm not going to be on dialysis in six months time. Not having it. I'm going to prove you wrong. X, Y, Z. And then left that appointment and then after then just feeling really distraught and dejected. And I went to see my health coach and I said everything that I had to say. You know, I just let all the emotions out and, you know, this is too much and and all the different things that I was saying. And my health coach listened to everything. And she said, Dee, I want you to choose to live. And I want you to say these words, I choose to live. And I sat there for probably half an hour to an hour, not saying anything at all, because I was just so like dejected. But then I finally mustered up the words, I choose to live. Until I got to the point where I was actually shouting them out loud. And that, for anyone, you know, at the end of every episode of Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast, I say choose to live. And I think it is important when you say these things, words are not just words, words are powerful. And it makes a difference. You're speaking over yourself like, I choose to live, I choose to live. And I think that fits so well within what you're saying. If you say to yourself, oh, I'm X and so I can only do X, then you only ever will do X. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that and do what I can do for myself, then it's amazing what the difference it can make. Yeah, very powerful stuff. I believe it personally that it is and can make such a difference. Absolutely. I agree with you. Words are incredibly powerful. And one of the things that I tell people are that words are the verbal embodiment of power. And it's like, you know, if you don't sort of believe me, look at any religious book, right? Take the Bible, the book of Genesis. It starts with, and God said, let there be light. And then there was light, right? So words are powerful. And so we have to be very mindful of the words that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. 100%. And so with this in mind, what word of encouragement would you have for somebody living with kidney disease? So I think that the reality is that if you were living today, then you have won the battle every day up until this point. You are undefeated in the fight so far, right? And one of the things that I often see is that people are, tend to be very depressed about things that happened in the past that they can no longer control, or they tend to be very anxious about things that may or may never happen in the future, but they're not living in the present moment. And be present in this moment. Enjoy this moment, because this moment is the only thing that we have. And if you truly want to be generous to your future, It's about giving your all to the present moment and just enjoy where you are right now. doesn't mean that every day is going to be easy. We all have our challenges, but know that you are undefeated and enjoy this moment. 
Very powerful. Thank you so much. So I know that you've been very active in paying it forward, as the expression goes, in terms of kidney advocacy and helping others. So tell me about the work that you're doing. Yes, I often work with an organization here in New York called Live on New York. So it is our big organ donation outreach program here. And so there have been times where I tend to do a lot of volunteer work. So for instance, there was an off-Broadway play about organ donation. And I was the person who did the talk back. So after the play was done, the audience and the cast would ask questions and I'd be on stage answering their questions about organ donation. There are times where I'm asked to go to different places, whether it's hospitals or community organizations, and just to share my story with people, especially in communities of color, right? Because there's a natural distrust for the medical system and they don't often get to see donors that are doing well, but also recipients that are doing well. And so to see, you know, not just the recipient, but somebody who's also a doctor can be very powerful for them. So I'm asked to go share my story in that way. So, you know, any chance that I get to share my story to educate people about the process, I'm all in for that. So you mentioned about the distrust when it comes to communities of color, when it comes to the medical profession. And this is something that is clearly worldwide because it's also an issue in this country. Yeah. So let's address that. So for somebody listening, for a person of color who is listening, who may have those feelings of distrust towards the medical profession, what words of encouragement would you have to say to them? Yeah, I think it's going to be really important for people to have different experiences. And this is where representation really matters, right? If you can see a, a physician who has the same background as you, or find organizations where there are donors and recipients that look like you, right? Because then that starts to improve the trust that you have. The reality is that I'm alive today because two men thought enough of me to make that sacrifice to save my life, right? And that's only possible because of the medical system that we have in place. My surgeons did not look like me. My kidney doctor does not look like me. But based on what the work that they've done, they have my best interest at heart. Like I remember telling my surgeon, I told her when I went for my follow-up, I was like, God has blessed me by giving me you as the surgeon. Right. But she doesn't look like me. <laughs> like we wouldn't hang out in the same place. We, we would never meet otherwise, but yet she still saved my life. And so I think opening yourself up to new experiences, surrounding yourself with people from your background, people that look like you that are involved in the kidney disease process and transplant process in some way is going to be incredibly powerful. Right. And, and you're also listening to two people talk who are in that world. Thank you. Again, very powerful words of encouragement there. Also, as I've said in interviews before, there is also, when it comes to men, a kind of not wanting to come forward for medical mm. treatment and quite often, for whatever reason, be it fear, distrust, whatever it might be, things get delayed until they are quite often too late for something yep. to be done about it. So could you give a word of encouragement to 
men who may be listening. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, this, this is something that as a doctor, I see often, right? With men trying to get them to take very good care of themselves. And so I have literally gotten to the point where you got to hit men where it hurts, right? Where it's kind of like, listen, see that beautiful wife of yours or that beautiful girlfriend of yours? You are not going to be able to make love to her. Like there's no pill in the world that's <laughs> going to help you if you don't take good care of yourself, right? <laughs> like that's the kind of way you have to go with men to motivate them or that money you want to make. You're not going to be healthy enough to go and make that money. You got to hit them in their pockets and in their crotch. (laughs) (laughs) And I've literally had to have this conversation with men and not just related to kidney things, but related to all types of things where it's like, this is your third motorcycle accident. That beautiful wife of yours, who's only 30 years old. If you kill yourself, there's going to be another man who is going to be married to her, raising your children. How do you feel about that? Right. I mean, the reality is that health is wealth. If you want to be able to live the life that you envision for yourself, you have to take very good care of yourself. You can't take care of your family, your business, your job, unless you first care for yourself, your body, your brain, your mind. Thank you. I must admit, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is something, you know. In, in medicine, here in the States too, you're just like, are you serious right now? You know, but we have conditioned everybody where you can essentially treat your brain and body like crap. And there's going to be a pill that miraculously makes things better. And that's not the case at all, right? Oftentimes pills may mask certain symptoms for a little bit, but they're not doing anything for the underlying process. And so it's really about getting people to understand that. And being like, look, there are going to be consequences that no pills can fix. Are you ready for those consequences? Powerful words. Thank you. So I know that you're very active online and you have a website. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you're also an author. So for anybody who wants to follow you online and go to your website, what are the details? Yeah, so they can go to my website at inleybrainfitinstitute.com. So I-N-L-E-B-R-A-I-N-F-I-T institute.com. They can find me on all social platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. I even recently started a TikTok, but I do not dance on it. So (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they can also email me. And they can email you as well. And all of those details will be in the description box. So yes, please do check out Dr. Philippe's website and his social medias. So here's an unusual question, but I like to ask this question sometimes. The question is, what question do you wish that I had asked you? Ooh. You know, the one that comes to mind is, has to do with the impact that maybe having kidney disease has had on relationships. Because I think especially when I was in my 20s dealing with kidney failure, and not so much this last time. But when I was in my 20s, I found myself in a place where I was angry, right? I was like, why me? Right? I was kind of like, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. Like, why did this happen to me? And at the time, especially in my late 20s, I was engaged, got married, and it took its toll because I was not a happy person. Right. As a result, feeling sick and knowing that this was on the horizon, 
needing to have a kidney transplant. And I think it's incredibly important that we take care of our physical health, but we also have to take care of our emotional and mental health. And maybe surrounding ourselves with people who have been through what we've been through and can sort of help us manage that. I think we also have to be not so judgmental. We need to not be so hard on ourselves, right? And also not be so judgmental of others, because even the people who love you the most will not understand what you're going through. And the expectation that they will is unfair. And be clear with them about what you may need in the moment. You know, if if it's a hug, if it's maybe somebody who can help you eating a little bit healthier, whatever it is, just be clear, but understand that they're not going to fully get what you're going through, even if they're present in your life every day. And that is 1000% okay. That is not their job. There are people who have been through what you've been through that you can reach out to that will be able to sit there and understand what you're going through and give you the support that you need. Thank you. Do you have a final word of encouragement for the listeners? I think it is that in every challenge that we face, there is a seed that allows us, if we look for that seed, that allows us to gain a lesson from it that we can then share with the world. And sometimes in our darkest times is when we find our our life's true calling or our life's true purpose. And so while you're going through something right now, maybe your calling is to share that with others or to help with people who are not where you are yet, especially if you've overcome some things, right? But you've got to look for whatever that lesson is going to be. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your story. Thank you for your very powerful words of encouragement. I know that they will help so many people. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for letting me share my story. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.